Hey, I'm Danny Mazer, and welcome to the Soul Stories Podcast, an extension of Soul Stories, where we host conversations for healing and change. America is in the midst of a cultural reckoning, and in this season, I speak with leaders and creatives who provide a well-needed dose of inspiration. Our guests spend their time following their passion, uplifting others, and making a positive impact in what sometimes feels like a bleak reality. This season is about hope and the belief that change is possible. Enjoy! Sarah Jackson is the founder and executive director of Casa de Paz. Casa de Paz's mission is to reunite families separated by immigrant detention, one simple act of love at a time. Sarah's journey is truly unbelievable, and she recounts it in her new book, The House That Love Built. I read it and absolutely loved it. I was honestly shocked by how I really didn't want to put it down. In this episode, we talk about the uncomfortable journey she had to go through to discover her life's purpose, the continuing barriers that immigrant families face, and so much more. This is a super fun and in-depth conversation where Sarah's passion, empathy, and ability to introspect shines. Here's our conversation. How are you doing today, Sarah? I woke up alive, breathing. And I turned over and I wrote three things I was grateful for. And that was a good start to my day. As the day went on, it gets a little bit tiresome and a little draining. But then there are moments of life and beauty. I really don't know how to answer this question. (laughs) It's like, how do you answer? Like, I don't know. I woke up. I had good points, bad points, low points. I'm still alive. Nice. Sounds like a very human answer. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about Casa de Paz for those who haven't heard of it and what's happening with Casa de Paz currently? Casa de Paz means house of peace. And we are a hospitality home about 15 minutes away from the immigrant detention center in Aurora, Colorado. So we have three main programs. And the first one is, like I mentioned earlier, a hospitality home. So when detained immigrants have family or friends that come in from out of town to visit them, we have a home so that those families can stay in, kind of like the Ronald McDonald home, but for families separated by immigrant detention. And then when an immigrant is released from the ICE detention center, if they are far from home, maybe their family or their friends or their sponsors live in a different state, Florida, California, New York, wherever it is. We also have a post-release support program. So when folks are released from the detention center, our volunteers come alongside them and help as they transition from detention to their final destination. So we'll bring them over to the CASA. We'll have dinner together. We'll start looking for plane tickets or bus tickets so they can get home. And then we have a variety of supplies, backpacks, clothing, toiletries that they may need. And typically, we provide overnight shelter as well. Uh, It is a literal home. Casa means home. But during the pandemic, we have been getting folks same-day flights and same-day bus tickets so that they can get home ASAP. And then our third program is our visitation program. So right now, ICE has suspended all in-person visits because of the pandemic. 
But before the pandemic, we had volunteers that go in every single day just to spend time with folks who are locked up. So we've, oh, I hate the word pivot now because everyone is saying it a million times, but we pivoted. And now instead of an in-person visitation program, we are writing folks in detention through our pen pal program. And we're also sending money orders so that detained immigrants can call our volunteers and their family and their friends to stay connected, whether that's a phone call or a video phone call. It sounds like you've been able to keep the services going in a way during COVID. Absolutely. And in fact, in the very beginning in you know mid-March, there were several quote-unquote mass releases of, you know, maybe eight or 10 or 12 immigrants that were released all at once, which we had never seen before. And our volunteers were ready. And within one hour of hearing the news of these mass releases, we had volunteers on site providing the post-release support. Then we also had remote volunteers who were supporting via phone call or text to make sure that all those travel logistics were being taken care of. And that has dwindled off. We are seeing fewer people be released from the detention center these days. But what the core of what we're doing is still functioning, although not many families are coming in from out of town because the in-person visits are shut down and also the court is still running, but not in person. So if somebody came in from out of town to be present for their son's court appearance in front of their immigration judge, they would not be allowed in the courtroom. So the hospitality home is not being used by families right now, but we still have space for immigrants who are released from detention. Okay. Are you currently living at the house then? I am not. My brother, one year ago, actually almost to the day, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Wow. And so when he was diagnosed with cancer, he lived about an hour away from Casa de Paz, where I was living. And so I moved halfway between the Casa and where my brother was just so that I could be closer to him. I knew that I would be wanting to spend more time with him. So currently right now, Oliver lives at Casa de Paz, and he is a former guest. He is in a, uh, he's from Cameroon originally, and several years ago, he fled Cameroon. His life was at risk, and he came to the United States seeking asylum, and he journeyed from Cameroon to the California-Mexico border. It took him three months just to get there, and then once he was there, he lawfully presented himself to the border patrol officer, and he asked for asylum, which is his legal right as a human being in on planet Earth. It's a human right to at least ask for asylum. It doesn't mean that you're going to win. It just means that you can at least ask. So Oliver lawfully presented himself at the border, asked for asylum. He was detained for over seven months in three different immigrant detention centers, first in California, then he was transferred to Arizona, and then finally to Denver, Colorado. And when he won his asylum case, He was ecstatic, as you can imagine, uh, but he was also released into a city that he had never been to before, and that's where we met Oliver for the first time. And Oliver came over to the Casa, and he stayed a few days, and then he went to some friends of a friend of a friend kind of a thing in Oklahoma, Uh, but it wasn't necessarily the greatest fit for him, and we stayed in touch ever since, and that's when I actually invited him back to 
live at Casa de Paz to help me on the, you know, the, just the day-to-day stuff that we need help to keep the house open. So Oliver lives at Casa de Paz, taking care of all of our guests and all the volunteers right now. That's amazing. Um, and re- after reading your book, it sounds like that is a consistent story in terms of you being able to support and build these really trusting relationships where people really feel at home at Casa. And for Oliver to come back, I imagine that could be kind of traumatizing in a way to have to work with people just coming out of the detention center after he came out of the detention center. Well, it's actually an interesting story because it didn't work out as cut and dry as I just shared. So Oliver gets out of detention. And at that time, we had a couple of volunteers from Mexico that were living at the Casa, kind of giving me a little bit of a break because I had started the house. I had lived in this small little one-bedroom apartment for years and sharing my space with hundreds of people. And I needed a little bit of a break, a little breather. (laughs) And so Fernando and Rebecca came to the house and stayed for about six months. The final week where where their time was just about to, or I'm sorry, the final month uh, that they were staying at the Casa, I had planned a vacation over in Europe. My parents lived in Europe at the time, so I was going to travel over to Europe to visit them. And then Oliver gets out of detention. Two days later, Rebecca's appendix bursts. She's emergency, right, in the hospital, surgery, the whole thing. And they were not able to finish their month at the CASA, that last month of it. And then I'm, you know, a few days later about to go overseas to Germany. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, where am I? Who's going to stay at the CASA? We can't just close down. People are still going to be released. And so Oliver gets out. And then I knew instantly that there was something different about him. He, he was released and our volunteer, Jose, went to pick him up. And then I wasn't at home at the time. But the next day I arrived at the Casa, I opened up the door right to like my home and I walked in. Oliver didn't know who I was. I assumed Oliver was a guest. Within 30 seconds, Oliver had already offered me a bottle of water. He offered Aww. me a seat on the couch. <laughs> I was like, well, thank you. I think I will sit on my couch. <laughs> um, but I knew right away there was just something about him that made me feel at home in my own home, you know. And so I asked him, I said, hey, I know you just got out of the detention center. I'm actually about to go to Europe for a couple weeks to visit my parents. What do you think about staying for a couple weeks and every day going back to the detention center to see if anyone's been released and then bring them over here and help them get home. And without any hesitation, he said, I would love to do that. And I understand that, uh, these are my words now, I understand that asking Oliver to go back and do that was a big ask. Mm -hmm. But for Oliver, he knew that that meant that his pain and suffering in detention was not in vain, that there was a reason now that he could use it to bring some kind of healing to someone else's life who was being released from detention. We can have dinner and there'll be 10 guests around the table and Oliver and I will be sitting there. We'll all be talking and I can say, I'm sorry that the country that I live in treated you this way. I'm sorry that the policies in this country 
have locked you up in these detention centers. I'm working to dismantle those systems, but Oliver can look around the table and he can say, I know how you feel. Yeah. And that's a completely different conversation. And immediately there's a a bond of trust between the guests and Oliver because it's true. He knows exactly how they feel. He knows what it feels like to flee home because it was too dangerous to stay home. He knows what it feels like to be imprisoned in a for-profit immigrant detention center for no other reason than why like nobody knows except that it's making a lot of people a lot of money <laughs> he knows what it feels like to get hear that knock on his cell door and hearing the guard say you won your case you're being released and he knows how it feels to walk out the back door of that prison not knowing where he is at like he jokes about it he says when he was transferred to colorado from arizona he had no idea. He said, what is a Colorado? Like, he didn't even know what Colorado was. So when he gets released from the detention center, he walks out the back door. Congrats, you're free, but uh, where am I? <laughs> doesn't have a phone, doesn't have any money, doesn't know anyone in Denver, doesn't know what a Colorado is. <laughs> um, and so he has that, that deep, deep, deep understanding that I will never understand. Yeah, wow. That's so powerful. And I want to come back to this because I think there's a lot of stories you can share and it's just so much to unpack. Would you introduce the book that we're talking about? Sure. It is The House That Love Built. I co-wrote it with Scott Sawyer, who is a, an author that lives here in Denver. And it is the story from basically the very beginning of my journey to learn about immigration and specifically family separation caused by immigrant detention. So from the very first days where I knew absolutely nothing about immigrant detention, had zero clue that that this was happening, to now eight years later having a nonprofit with literally thousands of volunteers, thousands of guests hosted from over, as of last week, 77 countries with story after story after story of the impact that being kind can have and doing something that might be a little bit new and maybe a little bit intimidating, but at the end, so worthwhile. I got that sense from the book. I was truly blown away from this. And here's how you'll know I'm being authentic is I went into it skeptical. I was like, oh, okay, you know, a, a leader in the community wrote a book, like, and I wasn't sure what to expect. And I was like, okay, like, I'll read it and see what's going on. Like, I knew I respected you. I knew how much I respected Custody Pause. It really is a page turner. How you built from not having resources all the way to where you were currently at and how many people... Casa de Paz is supporting is incredible. And also I want to mention, I was formerly Catholic. I'm no longer Christian or Catholic in any sense. Um, And there's a lot of Christian themes in it. And even that was so, it was so beautiful to see your perspective and see your community's perspective and how they apply faith into this. Yeah, it's funny because my initial 
response to the suffering that I witnessed on the border was, wow, okay, is this how I would want my family to be treated? The golden rule, right? Like do unto others as you would have done unto you. And while I see that that was compelled by my faith, I mean, even folks who don't believe in any kind of religion or spirituality, I mean, that basic tenet is, it surpasses so many borders and boundaries, right, that we, or labels that we put on ourselves. And so a couple days ago, someone told me, or no, somebody wrote a review. My friend Loring wrote a review about the book, and he said, if you can get past all the all the religious examples, you know, like <laughs> speaking of like my faith experience and scripture tradition, <laughs> and I thought that was funny because for me, it's um, it's not a religious act; it's just a hum- human act. It's an act of humanity, and of course, I look now, especially after I started the casa. To, to my faith tradition of what does the Bible actually say about immigration? And f- honestly, so I grew up in as a Christian. My family, my mom and dad converted to Christianity when they were in their mid-20s, I think. And so I just grew up as a Christian. I never, ever, ever heard <laughs> that Christianity had a lot to say about the way that we treat immigrants. And we pull examples from the Bible on what that looks like. I never heard any of that. And I grew up in the church. And in fact, I was working at a church (laughs) about 12, 13 years ago. I was working at a church in the evangelical Mecca, Colorado Springs. And that's how my journey was started actually in this whole exploration, I guess, of understanding immigration, immigrant detention specifically. So at the church, I was the pastor's assistant. And one of my jobs in the morning was to go through all of his email to weed it out, right? Delete the junk mail, respond to the emails I knew how to respond to. And then when he got to the office, he maybe would have two or three emails. That's it to respond to. And now as an adult who has a lot of emails in the morning, I'm like, that is, that sounds like heaven. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think when we, if, if I get to heaven, if there, if there is a heaven, that there will be somebody answering my emails. <laughs> um, but anyways, one morning I get to the office, I'm looking at the emails and actually from Catholic Charities, there was an invitation from Catholic Charities. They were inviting our pastor to go down to the Mexico-Arizona border to learn about immigration. And not only the U.S.'s role in some of the reasons why folks are migrating, but as people of faith, what is our response when immigrants come to the country that we're living in? And did not at all pique my interest. I just saw it as another invite. I checked his calendar. I looked at the dates of the trip. I realized he was out of the office that week. It was spring break, I think, for his kiddos. So I'm replying to Catholic Charities and I'm saying, thank you so much for this invitation, but we regrettably will not be able to attend. And I was almost about to press send. And then at the very bottom of that email, there were some words that did pop out at me. (laughs) And the words were, all expenses paid trip to Mexico. And I'm like, wait a minute, what is this all about? Let me figure this out. I love to travel and I had never been to that part of Mexico. So I just thought, 
what if I go instead of the pastor? It's an all expenses paid trip to Mexico. I'll pretend like I care about learning about this, but it's just really going to be a vacation for me. So they ended up letting me go. And for the first time in my life, I was hearing people tell me their stories on the border about how our immigration policies are negatively affecting them and keeping them from seeing their loved ones. Like my family, I can see them whenever I want, wherever I want. I mean, my, my brother, like I mentioned, when he was diagnosed with cancer, my mom got on the second to next flight, not the next flight, but the second to next flight. She was on a flight like that. Boom. She was, she was able to come be here with her son. Right. And that's not something that everyone has the privilege of. And on the border is when I realized, woof, people are telling me things that are happening to their families that I would never be okay with happening to my family. So I can't just stand idly by now. What, what am I going to do with what I just learned? Yeah, that seems to be a theme throughout the book. Your ability to take that lesson of do unto others as you would want to do on Kisei. You're so close. I'm so do close. Unto, <laughs> <laughs> do unto others as you would want to have done unto you. Great. Something like that. Don't quote I, me. <laughs> Don't open up your Bible, Danny. <laughs> I know. I went for the unto, and the unto is just. <laughs> That's the <laughs> who uses that word. <laughs> and what treat others the way you want to be treated. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, what do you think the difference is between somebody willing to apply that and somebody who is not able to see that for themselves? Like for when injustices are happening to immigrants and refugees and detainees and people in detention and you going over across the border, what do you think makes somebody be able to be like, this is not right. I want to do something about this. I will say that for me, that after the initial trip to the border, even though I knew in my gut, this is not okay. It took a good year of questioning asking folks that I knew and trusted that I could be safe with and and ask some really tough questions because, you know, I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. We listened to Fox News and Rush Limbaugh. My family now has journeyed. Uh, We do not listen to Fox News or Rush Limbaugh. Uh, But funny story on that. (laughs) I grew up in Bastrop, Texas. It was a smaller town. It's grown since then. But we were about 45 minutes away from Austin. And once or twice a week, we would drive from Bastrop all the way to Austin. We'd go to the big city. And while we were driving that 45-minute drive, my mom would listen to Rush Limbaugh. And if we interrupted her, like if we interrupted Rush, I should say, to try to ask my mom a question, we would get put into timeout. <laughs> like that's how serious we were. Now I'm pretty sure if my mom found out I was listening to Rush Limbaugh, she would put me in time out. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up with hearing things that I, I kind of, you know, just let fall into my brain and then out my brain. So when I saw that invitation from Catholic Charities and I saw immigration, I thought, oh, illegal, illegals, right? And right. kick them all out and build the wall higher. Like, what's the big deal here? 
And after that trip, even though I knew that, and by the way, I'm not advocating for the use of the word illegal. I'm saying that that is, was my thought process before being educated that nobody is illegal and acts can be illegal, but not a person. So when I came back from the border, even though I knew, oh, this is not okay, it still took about a year of examining and questioning. And I honestly believe that there was a little bit of a miracle because if you know me, you know I'm pretty stubborn. And I believe it was like a a softening of my heart because there are scriptures, right, that say like, give unto Caesar what is due Caesar, meaning, you know, follow the the law of the land, the governing law. But then there are also those verses that say, do unto others as you would have done unto you. And I was having a hard time reconciling the two. And I woke up one day, and this is where I say it was a little bit of a miracle because of my stubbornness. And it really was a transformation where I opened my eyes and I got it. It just clicked. And I thought, whoa, okay. Last night, I was hungry, so I found food and I ate it. Then I got thirsty, so I started drinking some drink. Then I was cold, so I put on a coat. Then I got tired, so I went to my bed and I fell asleep with my head on a pillow. I pulled the blankets up. There was a roof over my head. I love myself enough to make sure that those basics are taken care of. I love myself enough to make sure I'm eating, I'm drinking, I'm warm, and I can sleep under a a roof. So if I love myself like that and I claim to follow the words of Jesus, I have to do that for my neighbor. It's not optional. (laughs) And that was that morning where it just, in Christianese, they call it, you know, when you speak Christian words, they say the scripture became alive. And for me, that's what it was. But I will say that it's not the most comfortable thing to do because you understand that if you are sacrificing, that that means that your life may look a little bit different than what you thought it would be. And that's why it took a couple of years after that trip to the border for me to finally say, okay, let's do, let's do something. It wasn't an overnight, like, oh, I saw it and boom. And I think one of the things that really was influential for me at the very beginning was this mentality of scarcity versus abundance. And I remember I was at a presentation. I can't, I think it was in Colorado Springs actually. And someone raised their hand and said, well, we can't let them all in, right? We just can't let everyone in which then the, the person who was leading the, the discussion said, you know what, we have a choice. We can wake up in the morning and we can believe in a God of scarcity, in a God that would not take care of everyone, or we can believe in a God of abundance. And the God of abundance is the kind of God that I want to believe in. So that's the kind of God I'm going to choose to believe in. So if I believe that God is an abundant God, then then maybe we can, (laughs) you know, uh, we can do more than we thought we could do. Did, did you hear anything? I, I, you might've not, but did you hear how that statement affected that person? Do they have a response or? Yeah. So after, (laughs) Oh my gosh. So after that conversation, this guy and I, we started talking and the one who had the question, like we were the one that said, we just can't let everyone in. And I asked him, I said, 
you know, you came to this event. I'm assuming that you're a Christian because it's at a church. And he said, yes, I'm a Christian. And then I said, so if you were in a situation where you had to flee home and you had to bring your children with you to safety in the United States, would you come? And he said, yes. And then I said, okay. And then he said something that took me way off guard. He said, I actually think I have a solution to this immigration crisis and I problem or crisis. And I was like so new, right, to the whole discussion. I'm like, oh my gosh, tell me, like, what is your solution? He said, I think we should just put crocodiles in the river. <laughs> oh my God. And I said, I'm sorry. I said, I don't understand what you're saying. You just told me that if you were in a desperate situation, you would also come for safety. But now you're saying that your response is to kill people who are trying to come to the United, or scare them off at least, right? I said, how can you say that? How can you say that you would do the same thing that other people are doing? But, and he said, I don't have an answer for it. It's just, and I think a lot of that is fear. Like, what yeah. is the fear that's driving this? Okay, scarcity of jobs or resources or land or money. What is the fear losing our identity as a country? Last night, I actually was, it was like, I don't know, 1130, 12 midnight. And I was watching a video from earlier on in the day. It was my mom and she was playing with my little niece, Gabby. And all of a sudden, I started crying and I... I'm like, oh my gosh, what is that? What is that emotion right now that I'm feeling that I'm crying and I'm sad when I'm seeing a joyous moment? And then I realized there's going to be a day where my mom is not here anymore. And that's going to make me so lonely. That was such an uncomfortable experience for me. But I asked myself, why am I crying? Why am I crying when I see this video? And I had to be uncomfortable and it hurt. And even now my chest is hurting a little bit. But at least I understood, oh, I'm afraid of being lonely. So mm. when we do have these knee-jerk reactions to don't let them in, America first, those kinds of things, like what is that? What's the underlying fear or emotion? And I think all of us could benefit from digging a little bit deeper than just, you know, build that wall. <laughs> yeah, there's so much in there. And I appreciate you mentioned just like taking, being a, able to take action on this kind of sounded like similar to what you just said, which is like a process of reflection and a process of opening up and a process of allowing these like uncomfortable emotions to kind of sit with yourself. Well, at the very beginning, after I came back from that trip, a couple of years took me just researching, figuring it out. Finally, I moved up to Denver because I was still living in Colorado Springs. I was working full time at that point in my life. So I asked my supervisor if I could go down to part time and then move up to Denver so that I could start something. I didn't know what it was that I was going to do up in Denver. I just had this feeling, this like intuition gut thing that was like, move up, move up there, move up there. So I finally moved up. I moved about five minutes away from the immigrant detention center and I didn't know, I had no concept of Casa de Paz, no concept of a hospitality home, no concept truly of the degree of family separation that was happening because of immigrant detention. 
I just knew that whatever my response was, it was probably going to be around family because all of the folks that I met on the border told me stories of them being separated by their families or coming to the United States to reunite with their family or just being deported and then not knowing if they would ever see their family again. So family was that consistent theme. So when I moved up to Denver, I just started to attend all of the rallies that I could attend, all the protests, all the prayer vigils, all the movie nights, all the community events. And at one of those events, it was a prayer vigil slash protest, however you choose to look at it, (laughs) outside of the gates of the detention center. And we just stood there, you know, to raise awareness, A, that there's an immigrant detention center in Colorado, and then two, to bear witness to the sufferings that were and the injustices that were happening inside those four prison walls. So it was at one of those vigils where somebody said the name El Refugio. And I thought, what is that? Like, I know it's a Spanish word, but what is El Refugio? And they said, oh, it's this home in Georgia. It's about a mile away from the immigrant detention center. And the Immigrant Detention Center in Georgia holds 2,000 men, the largest one in the country. And El Refugio has this home where families of detained immigrants can stay when they're driving in from out of town. Maybe their family lives in Tennessee or in Texas or in Oregon. So family wanted to come visit their dad, their grandpa, their brother, their son, in the detention center in Georgia, they could stay at El Refugio. So a home that you let people stay in. I knew immediately that's what I wanted to do. I knew it. The first thing wasn't like necessarily, oh, well, what can I do like to make the biggest impact? Or it was literally, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds so easy. (laughs) So easy. (laughs) I was like, All you have to do is get a house and let people stay with you. Like, how much easier could this be? And then I thought, in addition to it sounding very simple and easy, it really centered around the idea of family. So creating a space that is used so that families can see each other once again. So eight years ago, there was no concept really of this post-release support program. It was, the CASA originally was created only for a place for families to stay when they were driving in from out of town to visit their loved ones. And then, you know, you're on the right path when other doors open and it doesn't take a bulldozer to smooth out the way, right? Like these opportunities with the post-release support and the visitation program, they just came and they fit really well with our mission. And so it was a no-brainer. Sure, of course we'll do these things. I laugh when you say easy, but I think there totally is something to that just for people listening who are like trying to follow their path and discover how they want to make an impact or change or et cetera, whatever word you want to use. There's something like an internal knowing of like, oh yeah, that is what I can do. That's how I can contribute. I know I've experienced this with soul stories, but it's almost like we don't consciously know we have these skills or wants, but we internally we're like, oh yeah, I can do this kind of thing. One of my favorite quotes, and I don't know who it is, and I'm not going to say it 100% correctly. So somebody Google it and tell me because I would love to remember for the thousandth time in my life, I've Googled this quote and I can never remember their name. (laughs) 
but they say um, your your calling, your true calling comes from where the world's greatest sorrow meets your greatest joy. And for me, that moment happened when I realized my greatest joy is my family. It is 100%. That's why I was crying last night at midnight. My mom is alive and well and healthy. And here I am like crying when I imagining her no longer here. My family is my number one greatest joy. And for me, I also see the world's greatest suffering as families not being able to be together. If that's my greatest joy, then what's the greatest suffering of that, which is families not being able to be together? And so that is the moment where I've truly found my calling. And I am so grateful for that, to know the purpose really of my life. And there's just this deep gratitude because there are still times right in, I mean, right now during COVID-19 where it can feel so disorienting and so, uh, you know, you're being, (laughs) what is that movie? Uh, Anchorman when, when (laughs) Will Ferrell is in that phone booth and he's like, I'm, I am, uh, I feel like I'm in a what a glass case of emotion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know? <laughs> you just you don't know what is up and what is down and what is right and what is left. But what I do know at the end of the day when I put my head on the pillow is that there is a movement that I am a part of Casa de Paz that I find great meaning to fill my life with and I'm very grateful for that. So you mentioned the quote about the world's greatest sorrow meeting your greatest joy. It's a funny connection. The last thing I did while I still considered myself Catholic was this retreat. And that was the final lasting quote that stuck with me as I transitioned from Catholic into not Catholic. Uh, But I think it's such a beautiful quote. It is. And that's, I think one of the most beautiful things of Casa de Paz is that we have folks from all different backgrounds, whether they're part of our volunteer community or folks who have just been released from the detention center. I mean, we could have an evening where 10 people get out of the detention center and then there's another 10 volunteers there and there are folks from every continent on the earth in the same house eating the same food, the same meal, and we're all getting along. Even if it's just for one night, like to be able to be part of something that is so familiar and so easy, it's really something special. And there there have been times where, you know, you introduce yourself to a guest and then, oh, hello, I'm... Jorge and I'm a Catholic from Guatemala or hi, I'm George and I'm from India and I'm a, you know, a a Sikh or I'm George from wherever and I'm a Muslim. Like in one night you can meet so many people with so many different stories behind their names and it's a gift. People continually say, thank you, Sarah, for doing this and thank you for starting this and thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm like, actually, I feel like this is a gift to me to be able to even have a conversation with you, Danny, like an ex-Catholic, you know, but we find that similarity that 
reminds us that we're more similar than we really think we are at the end of the day. There was one night a few years ago, we have a really good partnership with DU, the University of Denver, and they have some of their students do their service learning hours at the CASA. And one evening, some of the students from DU were over, and then we had a few folks who had just been released from detention. We were all eating dinner together. And the student from DU didn't speak any Spanish, and all the guests that evening spoke Spanish. So she was having a little bit of a hard time communicating and, you know, using Google Translate or finding a dictionary on her phone. But then at the end of the evening, even though she hadn't been able to have a meaningful for her conversation, right, to, for what she thought would be meaningful, it was just all small talk. But at the end of the night, she was sitting next to this guy who it was time for dessert and a bowl of fruit was being passed around. And they both reached for the same green apple at the same time. And for her, it, that was the moment, the most powerful moment of the evening for her when she realized, ah, this guy who I've been sitting next to for the past hour eating dinner together, you know, don't know anything about him, but I know that he likes this green apple and I know that I like this green apple and that's our common bond. For her, that was, that was powerful. Hi, everyone. I want to pause this conversation to tell you a little bit about Soul Stories and how you can support. Our mission is to host conversations that facilitate personal healing, human connection, and social change. We host a wide variety of online and in-person events, as well as this podcast. Check them out and engage with them at soulstoriesdenver.com or on Facebook and Instagram. This organization is completely volunteer-led, and we are working day in and day out to bring people together fight loneliness, and work towards healing ourselves and society. If you believe in this work, please consider signing up for Patreon or sending a donation to our Soul Stories Venmo account. Both are linked in the description. Thank you for listening. And now back to the episode. And I love it. A green apple. I mean, speaking of green apple, I don't know what your favorite candy is, but have you ever had those green apple lollipops with caramel on top of them? Oh, yeah. Ugh. There's so, so bomb. I know. <laughs> that reminds me of fall. So that little moment of connection is a huge theme throughout the book. You, you, in your mission statement, you say small acts of love and these like moments of just breaking through to people's humanity. That seems to be a major part of what you guys do. Yeah. And for the past several years, it's pretty much been, I don't want to say an accident, but it just has happened that way. And it's been astounding to watch this coordinating effort of thousands of volunteers coming along, thousands of folks being released from detention, and it almost seeming effortless. And now that we've had eight years of great Uh, success in the terms of we've been able to do exactly what it is that we said we wanted to do from day one all the way now to year number eight. But looking forward to the future, I also want to be more, I, I don't like the word intentional, but I guess intentional or proactive in finding additional ways to create opportunities as a volunteer community 
to understand a little bit on a deeper level. Like it's very simple, right? To bring a meal or to drop off toiletries or to spend an hour with someone in a detention center. But it takes a little bit more reflection and a little bit more time and effort to start to understand some of those root causes of, wait a minute, why would someone actually need to flee their home? Why would someone then be put into a detention center? Why would someone be held in a detention center for months or years at a time? Why would someone be released from a detention center stranded in an unfamiliar city? So unpacking these steps, that's what we're developing right now is a curriculum that we're going to take our volunteers through and then anyone new who would like to volunteer so that when they do come and have a meal with someone released from detention, there's a deeper understanding. And it took eight years to get to that point of finally implementing that, but I'm a firm believer that it always happens at the right time. And every single person that I've talked to about this idea really understands it and appreciates it because speaking as a white woman, I think that there's a lot of white folks, including myself, we don't necessarily see the power dynamic that is so now blatantly obvious (laughs) because people have pointed it out to us. But when we're living in these systems that keep us comfortable and not... I mean, did you hear, Danny, that the government is threatening to pull funding for schools that incorporate the 1619 podcast in their curriculum. Do you know uh, that that podcast? Have you listened to it? I haven't. No, but oh, I've it's phenomenal. Heard, heard of it. It's phenomenal. And it goes into the history of actually the first boat of slaves of black people from Africa, of you know, Africans that landed in the United States and then the history forward from that. And now our government is threatening to pull funding from public schools that use that in their curriculum, simply for telling the truth. (laughs) So if... It's a crazy time. It's Yeah, so it really is going to come down to our personal commitment to learning and then unlearning systems that have kept us, speaking us as white people, kept me Uh in in a place that, and people of color in a separate place. I'm curious if you think that will alienate any people interested in volunteering at Casa de Paz. Yeah, we've had those discussions as a team. And there's a way, I think, that we can introduce this without having someone turn around and run. Because even though we may speak the truth, we want to speak it in a way that people can hear. I was listening to a podcast the other day, actually. They were talking about this use of like publicly shaming people on social media and how it just doesn't work. The real change that people experience in their own personal lives isn't going to be because somebody shamed them. (laughs) Right. Even though I have done that myself, (laughs) you know, like screenshotted something somebody said and said, hey, did you know that so-and-so? And I mean, I think that I'm still not going to say that wasn't appropriate of me to do, but (laughs) (laughs) apparently the studies show that that's not where real transformation comes from. (laughs) So I think there is a way to have this conversation that can invite people in. And if 
before this, 100 people came to drop off a meal and now only 95 come because five people don't want to have that conversation, that's okay. Yeah. But we can find a way to, I mean, that's exactly what you do, right? Like you create these opportunities for people to come together to learn from one another, even if we're coming from what we think are, you know, two different sides of the table or whatever. So maybe you can help me understand how to do that. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I said in the beginning, I kind of brought it up because I am a huge proponent of Christians in, in Christianity that really, because when I was Catholic and my liberal progressive Catholic friends, like we really were like, Jesus, it, Jesus has this example of like being with the poor, being with the underserved. And I know that's something you really stand for. And I want to advocate for like people who are listening, maybe that might not be super open-minded to Christianity that like, there is this like large sect of people really trying to make the world a better place. And I see Casa de Paz as like the bridge to Christians or conservative Republican Christian or whatever you want to label them, being able to show them like a different way, a, a more compassionate way. What you guys do is remarkable. And I, I think people that are identify as conservative can hear that message if they are Christian from other Christians as well. Totally. Yeah. It's a message that I mean, earlier on, I was speaking Christianese. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it is more easy to to hear or digest. I think if you can instantly understand, there's a bond there. And I just want to also appreciate and say thank you for that compliment because another one of my favorite quotes is from Saint Francis of Assisi, and he says, "Speak the gospel, and when necessary, use words." I read and, that in your book. It was so good. Yes, yeah. right? I mean, and it's so true that people who come to the CASA who have just been released from detention, oftentimes they ask me, why are you doing this? Actually, there was this one time, I, don't, I can't remember if it made the final cut of the book, but there's, there's this one guy, he gets out of the detention center. I, I walk across the street. I mean, we're right across the street from the detention center. I can see it from my apartment. So I walk across the street, pick him up, bring him over to the casa. And he didn't, Spanish was not his first language. It was his second language. And Spanish was not my first language. It's my second language. Well, I can't even say it's my second language. I can barely speak it, but I can put a few words together. So we're trying to have this like conversation <laughs> together, you know, very basic. Like, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Here's the bathroom. And then around dinner time, this was way back when this guy and me and we were having dinner. So there weren't other people around the table to like help me with my Spanish. And he asked me, he said, why are you doing this? Like, why are you opening up your home? And I didn't know how to say unto, right? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. I didn't know how to say that in Spanish. But all I knew how to say was somehow I wanted to say like, you're my family. <laughs> so I said, because you're my brother. And <laughs> the look on his face, he was like, what are you talking about? I'm not your brother. But like, then I was like, well, like, you're my family. We're all a family, like the human family. And then he was like, oh, I get it. But for a second, I think 
thought I was like, but you're my brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As if you, he, you know something he doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's a good memory. <laughs> oh. I'm glad you said it out loud because you know when you read books and you say the words in your head, but you say them wrong the whole time? Yes. Um, what was El Rey Fujiho? Was how that, did I say it right? Yeah. Are you asking, are, is that how you say it? Yeah, that's what I was asking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> El Rey Fujiho, the refuge. Are there a lot of these hospitality homes throughout the country? Are there? I noticed you talked in the book about the UN wanting to model Casa de Paz. Is there like a lot of disparate kind of groups working together or? There are other hospitality homes across the country. There are a handful of homes like Casa de Paz, El Refugio. There are hundreds of detention centers. So I think in a beautiful world, there would be no immigrant detention centers. But right. if there were immigrant detention centers, I think a beautiful example of being good people to other people would be having a hospitality home right next to every single one of these immigrant detention centers. So the post-release accompaniment network is pretty small, but also very strong and very mighty. And in fact, today we were just all on a call speaking about some of the different asylum law changes that are happening that affect folks not only in detention right now, but also waiting on the Mexico side of the border to ask for asylum. So there is a small kind of community where we all sort of know who each other are. And then if somebody from Aurora that we know is transferred to Tacoma, Washington, I know the coordinator over there and then I'll reach out to her and say, hey, could someone from your visitation program start visiting so-and-so? He just got transferred from Aurora. So it is nice to have people who understand the work that you're doing and then you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I like to joke that I just copied and pasted what El Refugio did. <laughs> Not to say that we're doing it as great as they are, but nine or 10 years ago when I went and visited El Refugio after I heard the name at that vigil and thought, that's going to be so easy. So I went down to El Refugio to see how they do what they do, just to learn. And then at that time, they were only offering a home for families driving in from out of town. So that's what I thought I would do at the Casa. And then a few years later, El Refugio saw that we were doing, well, not just us, there's other nonprofits, but the executive director of El Refugio reached out to me and said, hey, we see that you're doing this post-release support program where immigrants are released from detention and you're able to provide the accommodations as they move to their final destination. And we do that occasionally, but we really want to have a stronger program. Can you teach us how you're doing what you do? And I loved it because I learned from them to start the hospitality home. And now I was able to share with them how we do post-release. And now both El Refugio and Casa de Paz have a home for families as well as a post-release support program. And I think that is proof that as human beings, we can consistently and continually improve not only ourselves, but our communities as well. Yeah, what a nice example of working together and not competing. Not like you could compete in this space, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't even know how that would happen, but okay. <laughs> yeah, let's not go down like a dark scenario hole. Yeah, let's <laughs> not. 
Um, you mentioned at the beginning dismantling these systems. Do you see Casa de Paz playing, like helping to dismantle this? You talk about being inside the ICE detention center as opposed to protesting it. And I'm curious, like, yeah, what are your thoughts on all that? I think that our role is to have a human connection with folks who are experiencing the most brutal parts of those systems of oppression. For example, having dinner with someone who's been released from immigrant detention and having that human connection, grabbing the apple, right, at the same time and understanding, oh, there's not that much that's really different about us. And then from that experience, using it to advocate, using it to vote responsibly, using it to educate our other communities that we're a part of. And this is a perfect example. We've got thousands of folks who have gone through our volunteer training and have spent time, whether that's through the visitation program or the post-release program or the hospitality home, they've spent time with someone who has personally been affected by immigrant detention. And then when they hear in the news or they see on social media or whatever that there is a legislation, uh, a legislative piece that's coming up for vote, they can call their elected officials and tell them why they believe that they should vote for or against it. And not just because I think so, but here's an actual story of someone I met who would be negatively affected by these things. And I remember about nine or 10 years ago, I went up to Washington, D.C., with the Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services. They were putting together a group of folks from all over the country to come up to Washington, D.C. to share what they're doing in their home states with their elected officials. And so I went, again, it was a free trip, this time not to Mexico, but to Washington, D.C., so I went. Um, It was actually really cool. We got a hotel right on the hill, and I felt so, like, important. (laughs) Um, But I remember the first day was they were just sort of prepping us and training us on what to say when we go into our congressperson's office or, you know, our representative, uh, their office. And they said, we do not want you to talk about stats and numbers and figures and all of those things. What we want you to prepare when you go into that office is one story of someone that you know. One story, that's it. Because people, I mean, this was, several things blew my mind on that trip, such as interns were telling us, yeah, my boss actually never reads the whole law, like the whole proposed law. They have us read it and then we report to them on what it actually says. I was like, huh, that's not good. (laughs) And then the second thing that surprised me was that they are desperate for hearing the actual stories of how it's going to affect the people that they're representing. And they looked to me at the time as the one who could tell some of those stories when I barely knew what I was doing. This was like way back when. So if they're going to me for stories, you can realize how desperate they were. <laughs> like, And now obviously things have changed and more people are, are using their voices. But I think 
that's the role that we get to play is by having these personal experiences and then using it to be Austin Channing Brown. She wrote a book and she said, the work of anti-racism is being better human beings to better human beings. And when you boil it down like that, that's something we can all do. Absolutely. What was the story you told? I think I told the story. It wasn't of somebody in Colorado and they asked us to share one from Colorado, but the most impactful story, I actually talk about it in the book, Augustine, the father that I met on that initial border trip. I was hoping you were going to bring him up. I was, oh, really? Yeah, that's, well, that was my did. hidden agenda. Yeah. All right. Well, it worked. Uh, so I'm down there right on the border thinking I'm just getting my free trip to Mexico. Like where's the beach and my pina colada, uh, did not have a pina colada over this one particular dinner. I was having dinner with a father, a young father whose name is Augustine. And we were in a shelter for men who had just recently been deported from the United States to Mexico. And we didn't go there, you know, on a lot of these mission trips or whatever it is that you want to call them, people go to, 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 to do the work, right? To cook the meal, to serve the meal, to clean up after the meal. But this was a very different experience because we were there to be with the other folks who were eating dinner at that shelter. We were not cooking, preparing, cleaning. We were invited to just sit and be and eat and be, be with one another. I originally was drawn to Augustine because he spoke English and I didn't speak any Spanish and I thought, oh, here's somebody that I could talk to because we share a common language. So I sit next to him and he starts telling me his story and honestly, I did not believe him. I did not, there was a voice in my head that was like, he's leaving out something like he's not telling me something because it just seemed so unreal what he was telling me is that he was brought to the united states as a baby like a baby baby he wasn't even walking so it was not his decision to come to the united states his parents brought him here he went to school he went to elementary school and then middle school and then high school and when he was 16 years old he went to his parents and asked them for his birth certificate so he could get his driver's license because all of his friends were getting driver's licenses. And that's when his parents had to have that conversation with him. Hey, actually, you were brought to the United States without papers. That means you're an undocumented immigrant. And that means you cannot apply for a driver's license. It's just not going to happen for you. I mean, you could go back to Mexico and apply and then come back to they lived in washington state but as a 16 year old that wasn't the option that he took he's going to stay in the united states right this is his home this is where his friends are his school is his community so he graduated from high school ended up meeting a, a u.s citizen woman falling in love with her having a family got married the whole thing he ended up starting his own construction business. He owned his own home. He was paying taxes, the whole thing. And then one day he's driving to school to pick up his two boys and his wife was home pregnant. And he's driving to school, picking up his two boys. And 
he sees the speed limit sign, which is, I don't know, 25 miles an hour or whatever in the school zone. Danny, have you ever sped in a school zone? Got a ticket in the school zone. Exactly. Me too. Twice. <laughs> Twice. I got a ticket. For me and you, that's just annoying, right? Like it's a fine. We had to pay. I know mine was back in high school when I had points and then I almost couldn't drive the whole thing. Well, for, for Augustine, it wasn't just an annoying fine that he had to pay. It meant for him, if he was pulled over in a school zone, that he could be arrested for driving without a license and then deported because he was undocumented. So, so quick question. If he's married, doesn't that give him citizenship? Nope. Really? Yep. I know that's one of the misconceptions out there. And my mom, when my mom read the book, she had the exact same question. She said, wait a minute, if he married a U.S. citizen, doesn't that mean that, and it's actually not like that. There, it, I will say that it could make it a little bit, so. Easier to apply. Well, Yes and no. And there's also, if you get detained and you are married to someone and have children with them, one of the things that you can argue in front of the immigration judge is that if you're deported, it would be a hardship on the family, that they rely on you for the income or for whatever, you know, if you're taking care of your family because they're sick. But I mean, I have been in courtrooms before where undocumented immigrants who are married to U.S. citizens, who have U.S. citizen children, are read the order by the immigration judge, you're deported. And that's exactly actually what happened to Augustine, is that he drives up to the school to pick up his kids. He starts driving under the speed limit because he knows that if he gets pulled over, he could get arrested. Then he's almost at the school when he sees police officer behind him with the lights on he pulls over the police officer walks around and says do you know why i pulled you over and augustine said no because he wasn't speeding he had registration he had insurance and the police officer said you were driving under the speed limit and that's why i pulled you over then he asked augustine for his driver's license which he did not have he was arrested on the spot. He was then transferred to a local jail where they found out he was undocumented. When they found out he was undocumented, they moved him to an immigrant detention center. He spent months in that immigrant detention center. And then finally, his immigration judge denied his case and he was deported. And that's where I met Abel. He had just been deported from his family. His wife was actually pregnant when he was detained and had, the babe, had their baby girl while he was in detention. So he was never actually able to hold his baby girl. And he was telling me these things. And I thought to myself, well, the question that you had, like, wait a minute, if you married a U.S. citizen, doesn't that mean you automatically are also a citizen? Or I thought to myself, why would we deport someone who's never committed a crime? Like... You know, you hear these things like right. that you grow up believing in this country that values family, but here is a father who had never committed a crime before, had 
done all the things that we're told a good citizen should do, pay your taxes. He started his own company. He owned his own home. He was a family man. I mean, like all these things that I grew up believing, this is the definition of like a, a good community member. And yet he was still deported. And that was a moment where I realized it was kind of crazy because I promise you, I was not on any drugs at this dinner, I promise you. <laughs> but what happened was that as he was telling me his story and he kept talking about his two boys and his girl and his wife, I, I saw his face, but then it started shifting and transforming. And then there were times in the conversation where I saw my dad's face and it wasn't Augustine anymore. It was my dad. Like viscerally? And yes. Wow. And then there were times on that same trip where we were putting water out in the desert because immigrants that are crossing oftentimes will die simply from dehydration, simply because they didn't have enough water to drink. So we went and put water on the trails that were popular for migrants to cross. And we happened upon a group of immigrants who were crossing from Mexico to, they were trying to get to Tucson. And there was a young woman there who was just a couple years younger than my sister. And it was cold. We were there in February. It was so, so cold. And she barely had this like very thin, thin uh, sweater on. And they, the group, there were eight or nine of them. They had one blanket to share. And when this young woman looked at me, the same thing happened. I, instead of seeing her face, I started seeing my sister's face. And there is no greater feeling for me of all of the feelings of love, of anger, of joy, of protection, of whatever it is that I'm being propelled to do when I think of my family. Like two summers ago under the, I'm sure you heard well, yeah, I think we actually met two summers ago because of the zero tolerance uh, policy, I think. How did we meet? Do you remember? Yeah, we met because we were on the Good Cinema panel. Yeah, yeah. And Bill and I met through the zero tolerance policy summer. So two summers ago, the Trump administration enacted this zero tolerance policy, which basically was separating parents from their children at the border which has been happening f not on that scale, but family separation has been happening for decades. Right. But it was ramped up two summers ago. And I remember thinking, if this was my sister, whose daughter, my niece, Gabby, if this was Gabby being taken away from my sister, there is nothing in the world that would stop me from getting them back together again. Nothing. Like I would, I would set everything on fire. <laughs> I would burn everything down to get them back together again. And I think that goes back to your question a while ago on what's the difference between seeing something and kind of being able to walk past it and seeing something and actually caring. You have, for me at least, I have to imagine what if that was my family? Because if I can't make that connection, then what? Like, it's not really going to resonate with me. 
But if yeah. I find something that matters to me and I imagine that happening to them, whew, get out of my way. <laughs> yeah. I think that is like the root of empathy. You know, we, we don't have access, like you mentioned earlier, to everyone's experiences. Like speaking as a white man, like I don't have access to anybody who's been brutally oppressed by this country in a myriad of ways. But just taking like a small step of being like, would I want this to happen to me? Would I want this to happen to my family? It evokes just so much more emotion than reading an Atlantic article with statistics behind it. Right. Yeah, that's true. We also have to, whew, I'll tell you, as a, I don't know, I just checked my phone to check for my age. I'm about to tell you my age and I checked my phone to see if it would give me the, <laughs> how old I am. Oh, gosh. As a 35-year-old woman, um, I have dated a lot of men who do not, love themselves and then that has a negative impact in a relationship i love myself i really do <laughs> and it's impossible it's very difficult i will say to be with someone who does not love themselves and i think that is also something that we can realize is hey this also is a very intimate thing for me personally i have to love and accept who I am because then I believe that I am worthy of these good things and then I believe that you are also worthy of these things. The older I get, I know it sounds so terrible to say like to be selfish, but in a sense like if we're not selfish, we are doing not only ourselves a disservice but also the people that we come into contact with. This is a really philosophical question. Do we really know what true love is in, a, in whatever sense if we don't love ourselves? This just got, this is not at all what you were about. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I love this actually. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is interesting because it's, it is a question I actually had when I read the book was your relationship with yourself. Because I think you're very, self-deprecating in a very funny way. And that's why I appreciate your humor so much. And you mentioned like boundaries a lot and you're being able to like, you know, establish your boundaries. Did you have to learn how to love yourself alongside this journey or did you love yourself before the journey started? I will say that the CASA has taught me how to better love myself and not day one or day two or even year one or year two, I'm talking about a year and a half ago, I had an experience where I was writing a speech. I was auditioning for something and I was writing a speech and the, the point behind the speech was simple acts of kindness. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I was kind of having a pity party because I had I'd been dating a guy, we just broke up, and I was feeling really bad about myself and wondering, was it really worth it, like, doing these past seven years of CASA and really focusing on that and maybe missing out on finding someone that I could, you know, be a partner with? 
And I remember thinking, okay, if my sister, once again, in my family, if my sister traveled to China and was put into a detention center for some reason and then was held there for two years and then she's released in the streets, totally foreign city to her, doesn't speak the language, doesn't have any money, doesn't have any clue as to how to get home to the United States. If there was a kind woman in China who came to Anna, my sister, and said, hey, come over to my house. I've got a place. I've got a phone for you. I've got some hot food. I can get you a clean set of clothes. You can take a shower and then I'll get you a plane ticket. You get home to, to your family. So then I started thinking if that lady in China was also single and feeling lonely at times because what she thought she may have had to sacrifice, right, in order to, to do this thing that she's doing, I thought I would call her and tell her, I promise you, you do not know my sister, but whatever it is that you sacrificed to take care of my sister, it was worth it. I promise you, even if that means that you're single and a little bit lonely, it was, I promise you, my sister is worth that. It's worth a little bit of your loneliness. It's worth a little bit of your um, singleness. <laughs> and I got to the point where I was like, yes, I could tell that lady in China, you know, really thinking I see myself as her. I could tell that person, my sister is worth it. And then I'll never forget this. I was at the Starbucks at REI downtown. And I'm just having my like chai and my <laughs> peanut butter energy bar <laughs> and I'm sitting there. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, what if that person released from the detention center wasn't my sister? What if it was me? Could I also tell this single lady in China, I promise that uh, your loneliness oh. and your singleness was worth it to help me. And for whatever reason, I had a feeling in my gut that said, yes, I could tell her that. So just gave me the chills. I know that like that changed my because for so many years I'd been doing this thinking, oh, my family is worthy of this kindness. A stranger is worthy of this kindness. But am I worthy of it? And the answer is yes, because if they are worthy, then I am also worthy. Wow. And do you feel like that was a switch for you or do you feel like that was just like a discovery? Like you had it. It was there and you just like we're like, oh, I do love myself. Or do you feel like there was like a switch that happened? That's a good question. I think I might have to think about that a little bit longer before I know the answer. I mean, I know that I've always loved myself in the sense of I'll take care of myself, my basic physical, like, like food, shelter, clothing kind of a thing. But it might have been a little bit of a, sh of a deeper level of love that I not only love myself enough to do the basic stuff, but also emotionally, you know, like my, yeah. my inner being to like feel it. Yeah. 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 I'm really happy we're talking about this because it is, you know, self love has been a really, really long journey for me and it still has its ups and downs. And I think that is the way for a lot of people and I, I think even this is, I, I'm projecting, but like as I was reading it, reading this book, it truly is amazing the level of empathy you exhibit. 
and like put into action. Like I, I truly was like odd. Like I was talking to my girlfriend afterwards and I was like, Oh my God, I don't think I'm like a quarter of this empathetic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I will also say that at the very beginning of the of starting the CASA, I'm a list maker. I make lists and I love to cross them off and get them done. So I think a lot of the initial kind of energy behind it was also very task oriented. And I know that sounds really bad, but like give me a list of 20 things to do and I will do it. But give me like one thing to do that takes reflection and time and quiet and that's that's a lot more difficult for me (laughs) so I think a lot of the stuff right that we've done whether it's creating these pen pal programs or you know putting a wish list together and folks coming by and donating or coordinating meals that's the easy stuff for me Mm. but the harder and that's why I'm excited about this new program that we're going to take volunteers through because I think for a long time we've been doing really good things together and now we can take it a level deeper where we can start examining some of the stuff that's not as easy as making a meal that makes sense yeah and I appreciate you giving voice to that and being vulnerable during this and like really showcasing like your humanity in it because it does seem like you were just following a path and it has its challenges and you're like, okay, I'm here. I can do this, but I got to go a little bit deeper and I got to challenge myself and I got to go here next, which is common for everybody is like, we're on this road and we're like, I want to go here, but I don't know how to, okay, I'm going to go. Oh, you know, and it's this like back and forth until you like do the thing. It reminds me of this one time where I was at the volleyball gym. So I started a volleyball league also, which raises money so that we can pay the bills of Casa de Paz. And so I'm at the volleyball gym trying to coordinate, you know, dozens of teams, it's the, the finals, the tournament, tensions are high, everyone wants to win. So I'm really focused there. Then I get a text from Oliver at the Casa and he says, the toilet is overflowing. There's like water everywhere. What do I do? And my first thought was, it's a, it's a guest. Like, how could they mess it up like that? Like, how could they... I blamed it on the other, on the other person. That yeah. was my initial reaction. Not that maybe I had clogged the toilet, <laughs> you know, or like Oliver, my roommate, had clogged it. You know, like, I immediately wanted to blame the other person. You know, it's those moments where you think, oh, yeah, like, I think I might have had a breakthrough and then you're like blaming the clogged toilet on the other person like because they're different and you don't know them (laughs) they're like oh gosh i appreciate that you're able to take those thoughts and challenge them and you know do positive things with them (laughs) what am i gonna i just remember laying in bed that night and i was like sarah you literally spent all day talking about seeing yourself in the other and seeing connections and then you're gonna blame the toilet (laughs) on the other person (laughs) and that's happened more than once obviously that's how i feel like with vulnerability with soul stories is like vulnerability is like my core thing and just like some of the times where I'm just like, fuck that guy. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, can you really do this? Can you? <laughs> the other day I was driving home and the car in front of me had a vote Trump 
2020. And I was like, this guy better not live in my apartment (laughs) because in like my apartment building. I'm like, because if he does, we will have conversations. I almost wanted to like flash my brights at him. Like it was in the middle of the day too. Like it would have even mattered. And then I was like, okay, like you really, Sarah, this is not your best moment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're like you will have a conversation with me and i will treat you with compassion but i won't like it <laughs> once a black all <laughs> <out of> time <laughs> oh that's so good well as we're starting to wrap up i'm wondering if there's anything we missed here that you'd like to cover or share or you know encourage people to get involved with I just want to give a huge shout out to Scott Sawyer, the co-author of the book. He didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. He heard a little bit about the CASA after reading an article about us. And he said, hey, I want to tell this story. It needs to be told. And he spent the last four years of his life, and not just on a brain level understanding, but also getting on the ground and picking up folks from detention walking across that busy street of Peoria with a 70-year-old grandmother who was just released and making sure she was able to walk up the stairs and get all the things that she needed in order to be home safe with her family. I mean, he really spent hundreds and hundreds of hours researching and talking with people and talking with guests and volunteers and people who used to work at detention centers and immigration lawyers and elected officials. And I, so I just want to really appreciate Scott for seeing us and believing in us and being able to create this amazing gift, really. I mean, Scott wrote 98% of the book. Let's just be honest. Um, I So he took those stories and formatted it? Yeah. And when he was giving me some of the rough draft of the first few chapters, I was like, how do you know so much about me, Scott? (laughs) Like, what is going on here? You know? So Scott, thank you for believing in us. And then obviously a huge appreciation to the guests who let us share their stories and to amplify their voices for the volunteers who are the most amazing people that I know. And if other folks are interested in volunteering, you can go to our website, which is casadepazcolorado.org. And we have ways that you can volunteer in the midst of a pandemic, there are ways that you can get involved socially distant um, and keeping safe. So you can check out all of that on our website. Well, this has been an awesome conversation and shout out to Scott because I am an amateur fan of writing and I feel like I can spot good writing. And this was quality fucking writing. Like (laughs) he really put together a book it was it built tension in all the right ways. I encourage anybody listening to pick it up, to buy it, to support Casa de Paz. We probably covered 5 to 10% of what's in that book. There are so many deeply moving personal stories to reflect on and to challenge yourself and to grow with and to just feel all the feelings. Well, and one last thing too, if you go to the website, we have a section there with our book information and you can actually download bonus materials as well. And some of those bonus materials are recipes that guests who stayed at the Casa told us. And these are foods that that are from their home countries. 
And so you can go and download those. And while you're reading the book, you can also cook meals, fried plantains or tostadas mm. or uh, spaghetti, you know, from all over the world. And then you can read a little bit more about those folk stories of why they came to the United States and their um, uh, time either in detention or fighting deportation. There are a couple other bonus materials on there as well, but you were talking about diving into the book, but you can also dive in in another way with those amazing recipes. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for talking, Sarah. Sure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to the Soul Stories podcast. These conversations are absolutely one of my favorite parts of working within Soul Stories. I hope you leave feeling inspired and energized. If you like what you heard, please leave a rating and or a review wherever you get podcasts. It really helps amplify the show and most importantly, the voices of our guests. Thanks and see you next time. This is Danny signing off.